0: Well, before I turn you over to Bill, there's one other thing I think we should talk about. I I don't want to sound melodramatic, but it's something that's been known to give a few people second thoughts about the job. Uh, My predecessor in this job hired a man named Charles Grady. as the winter caretaker. And he came up here with his wife and two little girls, I think about eight and ten, and he had a good employment record. Good references, And from what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and, uh... <laughs> killed his family with an axe. Stacked them neatly in one of the rooms of the West Wing, and uh, then he, uh... He put uh, both barrels of a shotgun in his mouth. Police, uh, they thought that it was what the old timers used to call cabin fever, a kind of claustrophobic reaction which can occur when people are shut in together over long periods of time. Well, obviously, some people can be put off by the idea of staying alone in a place where something like that actually happened. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not gonna happen with me.
1: Hello, we are live, and we are coming to you for our Cinema Lab presented by Grand Rapids Community Media Center and Wealthy Theater. We are excited to have you guys. My name is Virginia Anson Gruber, and I am the founder of Screen Club, which is the sister program for Cinema Lab. And with me tonight, we've got a fantastic trio of gentlemen, two with facial hair, one with, I think, facial hair, but I can't tell because of the way that the lighting's hitting you. No offense if you're really trying to work on some stubble there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you guys want to go around and introduce yourselves and say hello to the fine people?
2: Sure. Um, I'm Caleb Dillon. I'm the front of house manager at Wealthy Theater. Not that anybody's been there in a while. That's okay. We can all virtually visit together and uh, spend some good time together here at the
3: Overlook Hotel. A pointing to me. All right, I'll go next. My name is Chris <laughs> Kotcher. I have been summoned by Hayes uh, to speak next. I'm the Technical Services Director for Community Media Center, Wealthy Theater, uh, big fan of movies and cinema, and also an occasional actor and pseudo-filmmaker of uh, of my own. So I'm grateful to be here. I'll be clicking buttons in the background occasionally, disappearing occasionally, coming back, filling in for the mighty Sarah Naraki who couldn't be here tonight. Cheers, cheers to Sarah.
1: Now Chris, will your beard grow every time that you pop back on like Tim Mm -hmm. Allen in the Santa Claus? Like, is it just gonna be a little bit more and more?
3: There will be some continuity errors in my image in my square, so keep an eye out for some Easter eggs (laughs) and uh, potential hair growth, we'll see. (laughs) Thanks for having me.
4: Uh, I can't follow that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you must. Yeah, but I've got to. How's it going out there, y'all? My name's Hayes Griffin. I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. uh, Former station manager at WYCE, the best radio station on the planet. You should totally listen to that radio station because Mm -hmm. we are part of the Grand Rapids Community Media Center. Um, But here tonight to talk about avant-garde music with you. Let's do it.
1: Wonderful. Well, I am really excited because I know that this is um, a big fan favorite of Caleb's, who is usually a fount of knowledge. And for this, I feel like is even more because of the texts and emails that I've been getting this week of just the excitement overflowing, much like the blood out of the elevators, to just pour into our audience with knowledge from this film. I believe it was from 1980. It was um, based on a novel by Stephen King, directed by Stanley Kubrick, and starring Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson. And I guess let's just get right into it, guys. What is your um, experience with, you know, this film in particular, but then also what is your experience with Stanley Kubrick cinema, uh, like cinema in general and his kind of um, filmography. Um, Caleb, do you want to start us off?
2: Sure. I will start by correcting you um, a bit. I hadn't seen this film in a really long time. Um, I had probably only seen it twice, I'm going to say, over a decade ago. And I kind of felt like I vaguely remembered it and I didn't remember liking it that much, to be honest. a huh. uh, huge fan of other Kubrick joints, but I just remember this one not really hitting me. So I was excited to do uh, this episode specifically for a good reason to rewatch and dive in because it's an extremely deep dive when when you want to go down the deepest rabbit hole I've ever been on, except for maybe Twin Peaks, which we'll get into later as well. As you know, I like to commit to the bit. And um, (laughs) I watched this three times in the last two weeks. Um, including re-watching the Room 237 documentary, uh, full-length commentaries behind the scenes, and just endless amounts of YouTube film analysis. So I am looking forward to being released from
0: this
1: horrific
2: prison <laughs> that I really enjoyed at the same time. <laughs> and yeah, I would say that b- before I even saw this movie, I don't know if you guys had the same experience, but I feel like as a kid, I knew what this movie was way before I ever even saw it. Um, because it was such an endless, endlessly parodied thing, whether it was a Simpsons classic Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode, or you would just, I mean, you'd see it parodied on commercials and all this stuff. And I just, I feel like, I don't know how at that time we all just knew what stuff was when we saw it referenced a lot more than nowadays or something. But I definitely felt like I'd seen this before I'd seen it. So yeah, I would... Uh, I would say that I really, really enjoyed getting into it this time. I am i knew that there was a lot of mystery and a lot of layers and a lot of uh, conspiracies involved, but I had no idea it would be this wild.
1: Hayes, what about you?
4: Yeah, this is uh, probably one of the earliest kind of like psycho thriller horror film experiences that I had as a child. I remember watching this with my father who... Dad, if you're watching, you'd let me watch way too many movies that I shouldn't have been watching at that age. But God love you, because now I feel like I'm all the better for it, you know? But yeah, gotta love a bad dad. <laughs> no, my dad's the Speaking best. Speaking of, sister. oh okay. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was definitely one of the first horror films that you can say that I watched. Um, but I I had kind of an interesting second round of kind of interest in the film later in life just because of the music and when I went to graduate school I was exposed to a bunch of names and a bunch of styles of music that I had no idea about a lot of them largely lumped under the term avant-garde music you know what I mean um it, it's essentially just a catch-all term for anything that doesn't adhere to like standard musical rules you know a lot of the compositions featured in this film are like like the legendary ones at like peak moments in the film are from like famous avant-garde composers so it was cool to kind of like trace that thread back through the movie as I like got into school and college and stuff so that's kind of my relationship with it
1: and Chris what about you I know you said you've watched Kubrick um a fair amount I don't know do you have a favorite film what's your experience with Kubrick
3: my favorite Kubrick has gotta be, that's a tough one. Uh, for a long time, it was Dr. Strangelove. I don't think I can think of any other comedy that is like that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, There is a tone in that film that, uh, that I just can't get enough of. Um, not to go too much in a different direction as far as Kubrick goes, um, I've seen most of his later works. I've not seen a lot of his early works. I'm a huge fan of 2001, of course, uh, especially if you ever get a chance to see it in a theater Mm -hmm. when those chances are available again. Uh, I I can't recommend it enough. Um, Kubrick, I saw a handful of Kubrick films when I was in high school and I watched all of them on my small TV in our our basement at home. Uh, And I remember thinking, hmm, all right, these are interesting. Uh, and over the course of college, I started seeing some of them, uh, in theaters as they would screen. Uh, I remember seeing, uh, Clockwork Orange in, uh, in a theater my friend invited me out to, um, and I remember thinking like, yeah, that movie's all right, but there's something about seeing his films in a room that you can't leave that Mm -hmm. I feel like is very important to the experience, uh it just made me digest it in a whole new way and see things I'd never seen before. Like most movies you would think, but particularly with his and the shining definitely applies to that. I think the first time I saw the shining was at wealthy theater, um, before I worked there for a meanwhile, the first time I saw it in a theater was for a meanwhile film series screening. Uh, and seeing the shining in a theater is a unique experience, especially now, um, in, in a room like that. Um, I feel like it yields more laughter. I don't know if we're gonna talk more about tone within the scenes later, but there was was a lot more uncomfortable laughter within the film that I thought was (laughs) unique. And I wasn't sure if it hindered with the experience or not, Um, but it was still an incredible, incredible watch. Uh, So I'm a fan of the movie. I too, like Caleb, saw the Simpsons version of it before I ever saw the actual (laughs) movie. So I see the movie now and I think of Treehouse of Horror yeah um, the shinning the shinning yeah exactly
2: groundskeeper Willie, <laughs> classic
4: hey i found a shortcut through hedge maze who are you little no no go easy on the wee one his father's gonna go crazy and chop Mole into haggis
1: what's haggis
5: <gasps> boy you read my thoughts you've got the shinning you
0: mean shining
5: Shh, you want
2: to get sued now look boy if your dad goes gaga you just use that Shin of yours to call me and I'll come a running
5: but don't be reading my mind between four and five that's Willie's time I like what
2: you said Chris about being trapped in a room with a lot of Kubrick movies and especially with this one because my question to everyone is is this the best or worst quarantine film of all time as far as being trapped in a place maybe with maybe with people you love who Are also very difficult sometimes, and maybe you grow to not love so much, or you go on a journey with, let's say, like this this wonderful family in this film.
1: I will say that I definitely related to that question when you asked, and not necessarily even really due to quarantine, but I am currently and historically uh, from Florida. I'm currently in Florida. I'm from here. I lived in Michigan with you fine folks for five years, and. About three years ago, I think it was, we had that particularly heinous blizzard, Mm -hmm. where we were all quite literally trapped inside. I think I didn't leave my house for close to like eight days. I, I, I know that work was closed, school was closed, like all these like, you know, roads, you couldn't get to them. I remember having to have like neighbors like help me dig my car out and stuff. To where I was like, oh, cool, this is only something that I've ever seen portrayed in, in film or television, oh, sure. in, in yeah. the motion pictures, you know, I had never really experienced anything like that. But I will tell you that there's something very, the word scary is the best word that I have right now in my vocabulary for it. But looking out and seeing snow kind of piled high to my door, um, looking out and re- realizing like, oh, cool, like we still have power, but like pretty much the food in my pantry and what's in my fridge is like what I've got for like the next, who knows how long, because they have not plowed this road that I live on. You know what I mean? That idea of truly feeling trapped, I hadn't really experienced it before. And so now when I think of this film in particular, and remember that experience, it really does kind of like, it weighs even even more and i know that you guys mm-hmm. just had some snow i am in the land of alligators and humidity so like i can go outside but with the pandemic you know um i was talking before we got on mic like I, my kid doesn't really go anywhere like we had to go to the dmv today and we both had to be there and he was like waving at everybody because he was like other oh, humans this is amazing you know oh, same. Um, i was mean. <laughs> yeah so like that idea of confinement like that um that this film really hammers home. And also I think to what I know Hayes will unpack later, a lot of that scoring is so oppressive Mm -hmm. audibly um, that you kind of, you feel confined. You know, and a lot of the framing, a lot of the way that things are shot, it's tight behind him when he's on his big wheels. It's, you know, there's these tight, intentional shots that are kind of juxtaposed with like the wider, you know, full shots of the hotel. Like they don't, but, but that's basically all you're seeing is like the hotel. You're not necessarily seeing outside of that opening kind of title sequence, when they're getting to the Overlook Hotel, we visually follow them on that journey. So you don't really, once you're there, you're kind of just there. And my particular experience with Kubrick before this and, and during all this was, it was actually the first thing that I ever programmed was a Stanley Kubrick film festival for um, Florida State University when I was in college in 2010. And well, I had, I was a programming associate with our year round program, but this was a thing that um, shout out to Bob Howard, who is the the former um, director of that program. It's phenomenal. It's a student run student led um, film program. It's like a 300 seat movie theater. um, And we ended up getting both Jan Harlan, who is um, a producer on multiple Kubrick films. He started on Barry Lyndon and basically went through, I believe, um, AI, which was not a Kubrick film, he went through Eyes Wide Shut. But then he also was mm-hmm. a producer on Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures, because he's married to Christiane Kubrick, who's Stanley's sister. Um, and he was actually in the helicopter with the DP when they were getting those wide shots. So we had him come to Florida State, and he like hung out with us for a few days. And he does a lot of student stuff. And that was really cool. And then we ended up actually, uh, one of my dearest oldest friends happens to be the nephew of Vincent D'Onofrio, So I was able to actually get Vincent D'Onofrio to come and we did a full metal jacket panel with Jan and Vincent, which was really fun. And they hadn't seen each other since the filming, which Mm. was so great. And so they got to kind of reunite and then tell us all these like stories. But it was cool because similar to this film, we're seeing a lot of these themes that that pop up in Kubrick's work, which is a lot of, you know... um, a phrase that we now know, which is toxic masculinity, but a lot of that idea of that being wrapped up into some sort of psychosis, right? Um, and and violence and, you know, so it was, it's a really good, bad movie for quarantine, <laughs> because it makes you feel all of those oppressive feelings and especially now having gone through snow and stuff. That was such a long response, but like I have a lot of feelings, I guess, about being cooped up. Um, I can't believe you watched it three times, to be honest, because even like looking at some of the stills now when we're like going through, I'm like, oh, nope, mm -mm. don't need to watch see that again. (laughs) Well,
2: here's here's the progression. I watched it the first time just cold without any, just watching it to have the experience. Second time I watched it taking notes. And then after I did all my research and everything, last night I watched it for the third time. And incredibly, after all of the crazy conspiracies and 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 research and rabbit holing um watching it last night there were like four things that i noticed that i've never seen before or seen anybody talk about before which i'll bring up later how 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 in the world it's it's so richly well, textured and layered you
1: did that to yourself three times so your brain was probably like help me and need oh, yeah. to find the new things to look at and to like parse through
2: I'm kind of a masochist for harsh films, actually.
1: You? So, that's
2: yeah, that's a
1: surprise to everyone listening.
2: Uh, Hayes, Chris, you got any good uh, off-top-of-your-head quarantine films or uh, stuck-in-one-location at odds with, with a small group of people films?
3: Misery. Nice. Misery is really up there as yep. far as
4: that category goes, I would say. Just had mm-hmm. a discussion with a friend about that movie the other day as related to our current experience in life right mm-hmm. now. But yeah, that's a great recommendation. I love that.
2: That's cool. The correct answer is John Carpenter's The Thing. But we'll let it slide this time.
4: Yeah. The that Thing. Is, that's not a big I lost ball. this
3: round. <laughs> cue, the, cue the buzzer.
2: We are keeping score.
3: So. <laughs> Interesting that both that both Misery and The Shining are from Stephen King, right? I, yeah. I wonder... There's something about his voice that connects with the quarantine world in some way.
2: Maybe because he stayed at home and wrote a lot.
1: Well, I was even reading that he kind of put a lot of himself into the Jack Torrance character because he was dealing with writer's block and, quote, aggression towards his family at that time. And I was like, all right, you sound like a pile of fun to live with. Yeah. I wanted to mention too. There's a great film by um, a director named Josh Rubin uh, called "Scare Me." Um, it's a newer film. It's out on Shutter right now. Um, that is
2: a good quarantine watch. I, it was sure. so
1: fun, and it's it's it is that same contained, um, but there's an element of like uh, dark comedy to it. So if you're looking for that kind of feel, but with a little bit of levity, I definitely would recommend checking it out because it, mm-hmm. it was very very fun
2: you guys want to do context corner yeah definitely
1: do you feel like eventually we should have theme music for context corner
2: you i mean good i know like, a couple of people who make music around here oh Whoa.
1: yes that
4: yes, came so- out of nowhere <laughs> all right guys what are we doing right it not
3: <laughs> coming on down to context corner oh yeah wow. yeah Come a little more down.
4: down to context corner
3: a little more context there you go <laughs>
0: So good.
3: Give me wow. some
4: context there, Caleb. Will you?
2: Wow. I'm I'm stunned. I'm <laughs> completely taken aback.
4: Chris, um, uh, we're getting 50% uh writers credit on that one. Okay. I think that was a collaboration <laughs> there, right? <good> deal.
2: <laughs> Speaking of uh great collaborators, let's talk about Kubrick just for a quick sec in case people aren't familiar. You know, there's a reason he's quote unquote Stanley Kubrick, and you've heard of him. Um it's mostly because he, uh, he made 11 feature films, and nine of them are arguably masterpieces, which is some kind of track record. He spent a lot of time on them. Uh, that's 11 features over 43 years. So he, he's not as prolific as some other directors, but when you're talking about movie for movie, uh, what, what are thought of as, as masterpieces or great works, um, they're all there. He was, I didn't know this, he was literally a genius, um, 200 IQ, pretty much anything over 180 is like off the charts, like profoundly gifted. He was a uh, voracious reader. He was obsessed with film, um, all kinds of film from a a young age. Uh, He was a professional photographer for Look Magazine in the late 40s, which is sort of the competitor to Life Magazine. He started out making short films uh, with very small, if 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 even existent crews. Um, so he definitely learned by doing. He said the best education in film is to make one. And uh, he started uh, his first feature was in '57, I believe. But even if you just consider the run of from '64 to '87, Doctor Strange Love, 2001. Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, and Full Metal Jacket. These are all like major, major, major movies. He didn't really have any, any uh, stinkers in there, which is just incredible. Um, he was a notoriously demanding perfectionist. He was obsessed uh, and involved with every little detail of production. Um, he was also notorious for Dozens, if not hundreds of takes of scenes, The Shining was was a great example of this, where he used the technique of absolutely wearing down his actors to get them to transcend to another level. And Virginia's just we'll dying to add I wanna, to this.
1: Well, I want to open this up for a little bit, because sure. you, you said his actors. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fairly well known that with this film, it was particularly... Just Shelley Duvall, because I don't know if it was because, you know, Jack Nicholson was the more name actor or because he was sort of, you know, the lead of the film. Although one could argue that when you only have three, you know, four characters in the movie total, like you're kind of all co-leads. But I digress. Mm -hmm. It's fairly well known how how brutal his his filming techniques were Mm
3: -hmm.
1: as it pertained to Shelley Duvall. So uh, as, um, you know, fellow filmmakers, Chris, you really, you uh, hyped yourself up a lot earlier when you were like, I'm a pseudo filmmaker slash actor. You guys, this guy is he's a like big
2: shot actor, truly actually.
1: one of the best actors I've ever seen. And like, he was so humble to, to like, give it like, he's truly one of the like, most also like, diverse actors, he can give you like comedy, he can give you scary, like, it, like Red Skies, it's still I can't. Anyway, we'll link all the stuff that he's in. But I'm curious for y'all who are film lovers, filmmakers, film, you know, critics, really. What do we think about that as a directing style? Because if we're comparing that to something that would be more of more natural techniques, right? Like Like a before sunset kind of a vibe, like a link later, like a very like, I mean, low key is the best way that I can describe it. How do you feel about that as a technique to get a performance out of an actor when there are so many other ways that a director could theoretically do that? Because Shelley Duvall has kind of gone on record saying that that like movie psychologically broke her down. Um, so I'm just curious I thought It
2: psychologically broke me down and I was just watching it, so, <laughs> you know. I think that um, the ways that he terrorized Duvall and instructed other people to terrorize Duvall on this film Obviously are going to be a point of contention for people and be very divisive, but it's not like he terrorized every actor. Um, and it's not like he picked on her just because he didn't like her. I would say that whatever his methods, her scene in the bathroom as Jack is, is uh, axing his way into the, into the room. I think it's one of the greatest examples of terrified acting, whether it's real or whether it's, it's fake. I mean, I think, I've never seen someone look so afraid and you're trying to make the scariest movie ever made. Why would you compromise?
1: But we're, we're talking about it's at the expense of somebody's mental health and, and being. Like, I think that there's some compromise that could be had there. I don't know. It doesn't need to just be me between me and Caleb arguing, you guys, <laughs> feel free to add whatever you want. I'm just curious. I'm just as, you know, cause I, I am a, and I'm going to pull Chris, I'm a director, you know, I've done very minimal projects in that realm. I started off mostly as a producer, but the more that I go into directing and the more that I'm like, I, I feel like that would never have been the way that I would, would try to, you know, get something out of an actor. So Chris, especially as an actor, like, how do you feel about that as a technique when it becomes something that obviously is like affecting your mental and physical and emotional health? Like, do you think that that would be worth it for you in a performance?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And I was thinking about that a bit before this, I think in the example of Shelley Duvall, that's a good example of maybe the extreme going too far. Uh, me as an actor, I, I love it. I, I, I come from a theater background where you have weeks of rehearsal before actually doing the show in front of an audience. And I, I, I did most of my training and early work in that world. And then when I started doing work in the film world, especially when you're doing work in like independent film or on short films or on your friend's film where you have 15 minutes at this copy shop and you got to get off location, really, and you only maybe get like two takes, um, there's not really a lot of opportunity for rehearsal. So um, your preparation kind of comes comes into play differently. So when I hear stories of David Fincher and Kubrick and others like them who try to kind of break through ground and find something different, I, I kind of admire that and would love to live in a world like that for, uh, for a project. Uh, I, I listened to this interview with, uh, Nicole Kitman, uh, she was on Mark Marin's podcast a few weeks ago, and she talked about working with Kubrick on Eyes Wide Shut. And she said something interesting where she thought that Kubrick seemed to her, Kubrick seemed interested in getting to the place of something unexpected, and something uh, of surprise. In conjunction with that, I think that works with an actor like Jack Nicholson in a way who is sort of interested in finding those moments of spontaneity and something different within a take. I think you see it in a lot of his work. He uh, he wrote this intro for an acting book. If he ever wrote an acting book, which he totally should, and he's still around, I don't know what he's doing, but Jack, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he is. Yeah. And he's listening. Hey, Jack. Um, <laughs> I would love to hear your insights on the craft in general in a form like that. But he, he said something about technique and how like a technique for an actor he had conflicting feelings about. So as much training as he did do and as much technique as you can even see him doing behind the scenes in the making of this movie, he talked about how there's something gypsy about it and getting to this space that's like just uniquely you and uniquely spontane- uh, spontaneous. I think the extra takes kind of help that and help break through a performer getting out of their own way. I don't know, Hayes, if you have any thoughts as far as, uh, being, being in the music world, finding spontaneity within your
4: songwriting or your music playing. If there's, uh, if there's similar approaches when it comes I, to, I hear you saying, uh, like finding a zone after doing a million takes. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I did. I can definitely relate to that. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. I can't say that, my engineers and producers were psychologically manipulating me behind the <laughs> scenes and terrorizing me in order to get the best performance out of me. But there is something to breaking through that wall, I think, you know what I mean? And kind of getting through that base layer. Um, But I, I will chime in with my opinion, because it seems like we're asking opinions on like the kind of the morality of this thing like t- to chris mm-hmm. it, it sounds like chris is interested in that type of experience with kubrick you know what i mean like so to me there's like this implicit or this this question looming like is it elective <laughs> mm-hmm. like are you are you going into this knowing that this guy's gonna do crazy stuff to you and if it's not elective then that's psychological like that's abuse and that's wrong, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's my opinion, but well, maybe I'm think, oversimplifying.
1: No, I think you have a point. And I, I think maybe that's just what I was getting at is like it, from everything that I've kind of read and experienced and that she's kind of spoken about it, it's like, and I, but I'm not an actor, right? Like the most that I ever did was like for a short that my sister wrote and directed and halfway through I quit because I slipped and hurt my butt because I slipped on concrete and then she wanted me to do more takes. And I was like, no, I'm done. Like, what I literally a was like, I'm, listen, <laughs> listen, have you fallen on concrete before? I could barely walk. She wanted me to run up and do takes again. No, thank you. No, thank wow. you. What so, a tyrant.
2: It sounds very Kubrickian.
1: I'm just saying, I don't think it was her fault, but I also was very much like, yo, I'm done. So yeah. there's a part of it that, especially from my very limited experience of being a quitter (laughs) like it because it felt like it wasn't what I was signing up for and also I was tired my butt hurt I didn't feel like I was able to like do that again and I in my mind I was like didn't we get it it was just me running up the stairs like didn't we get it already you know and so I just I think that's what I just keep coming back to is like is it like to to your point Hayes is it is it what you were signing up for or is it not and I can't imagine that a film with the budget and scope of The Shining that they wouldn't have had rehearsal enough I just I guess and everybody's accounts of this I'm sure are different and a lot of what I've heard is that you know he just wasn't particularly happy with her performance but we also know that there's a history of actors being replaced if they're not necessarily giving what the director is wanting so I I don't know I guess and I, I think now present day Shelley Duvall as we know her now you know, there was that really like infamous and I think exploitative, you know, um, Dr. Phil episode with her a few years ago, you know, she's obviously suffered a bit more trauma since then. So I think I'm also thinking about through the lens of 2021 and maybe not the the lens of 1979 in production for the the movie. Um, I just wanted to, I don't know, I just wanted to bring it up uh, just in, in terms of production and creative choice, because so many of, I think some of the like best performances really fall under this like cinema verite category, you know? So it's like, I think there's two schools of thought there where you can really push somebody to the brink of unexpected, or can you just kind of almost fly on the wall style, be there to catch the unexpected. You know what I mean? It just what the beauty of filmmaking, I guess, is that in storytelling, is that there's a, a lot of different ways to get to the same outcome.
2: Yeah. Endless techniques. And uh, I mean, I know that, that one of the reasons that Kubrick's productions took so long is that he was known as someone who would sit and have one-on-one hours long conversations with actors and spend the time with them. God, um, that
1: sounds so annoying. If you were not <laughs> like, I'm sorry, that sounds terrible. If you were just like crew on the, how annoyed would you be? You'd be like, on the martini, ready to go home and then 3 hours later you're still there because he has to have like a feelings conversation with somebody. N- no, that would be so I would I would have quit that too, I'm going to be honest. Well,
2: speak, speaking of context corner by around 1978 if you were asked to be involved in a Stanley Kubrick film, you were ready for whatever. Including a 51 week shooting schedule. 51 week that's a year. That's a year. Uh it was supposed to be 17 but uh, 51 weeks, that's just shooting. That's not post-production. That's not editing. They just shot for 51 weeks.
1: That's like Lord of the Rings level kind of stuff. And they shot three Lord of the Rings movies in that time with like multiple battle sequences <laughs> and like 30 days of night shoots. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. That's excessive.
2: Well, Kubrick was yeah. only he was only topped by one person once. And of course, it was himself. The Guinness World Record for longest continuous shoot is Eyes Wide Shut, 400 days, 15 months of continuous shooting for Eyes Wide Shut.
1: <laughs> do we want to bet that, like every day, Tom Cruise was like, "Yeah, this is amazing, making movies. It's <laughs> yeah. so great." Like day yep. 400, he was just as amped as day one. Oh yeah! Like, can you can you believe we get to do this? It's this amazing.
2: <laughs> That's great. Yes. What do we want to talk about next? I didn't want to get too much into the the King to Kubrick adaptation just because I feel like if you love this movie and you haven't read the book and you don't plan on it, you know, it's an interesting part of the story and notoriously hated by their author's adaptations are sort of interesting, but we could kind of go off on a whole tangent with that. I don't know if anybody has any other examples of successful adaptations that just can't seem to get along with the original source material.
1: I... I don't know about that necessarily, but I do know that when they remade this as like a mini series, they did mm. stick to the original novel ending, which, like I think it's fine to spoil a movie that's currently forty one years old. but um the, with the boiler and everything exploding. Right. Um, so I thought the it was- destruction
2: <laughs> of the hotel is what you're is, which yeah. is what happens to the original novel.
1: Well, and and really the idea, and we talked about this a little bit beforehand, I think that the differences between the novel and Jack's characterization and sort of the way that he turns in the novel versus the way that this film is presented, it's an, it was an interesting choice by Kubrick to basically make him the antagonist from Jump right? Like in the novel, he's a bit more of like an okay dad. And he isn't like, it's not that through line of him just being generally terrible. There isn't like the hints of like, oh, he abused his son and probably his wife, you know, it's more like he gets possessed by the spirits of the Overlook Hotel. And then that slowly is what kind of adds, you know, this weight to his decline. But even in the end, he still kind of allows them to get out before the boiler explodes. And he Spoiler alert, dies with it. So it was just an interesting choice. But I also think that that probably was Kubrickian in that because if we look at a lot of the other main characters, I specifically am thinking of Vincent D'Onofrio's character, pile in Full Metal Jacket right Mm -hmm. like there's that very like looming scene where he's in the the toilet and he has like the shotgun and everything you know so I, I think the examination of ethics morality mental illness alcoholism right they all kind of play into a lot of these kind of character soups that Kubrick likes to like go back to a lot and i just i think that that's interesting given that the original source material does have jack being like kind of a a more sympathetic character at least at the beginning and also they also play up uh the the kid why am i forgetting the son's name danny thank you um he's like more overtly psychically gifted in the novel too he's not kind of like hiding it as much as he kind of is in the movie he bonds with the caretaker a little bit more they're both talking about it a little bit more than they are in this film. So in that way, again, I think it just plays into a lot of the like, like intentionally misanthropic, like he, he's a bad guy. We're kind of getting that from the jump that Jack is like, not a great guy. And the novel kind of is a little bit more nuanced. So.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think that Kubrick read it and he got a different thing out of it than what King put into it. But I think that speaks to, interesting way that works of art always hit people differently and the question of whether you know how much ownership does the artist have on their work once it's out there in the world and how much ownership does a reader or a watcher have on that art and and what they project onto it but did you chris and hayes have you guys read
4: the book i have not read the book actually um i've i've Uh, uh, what do I want to say yeah before I jumped on here I did the cliff notes version (laughs) because I wanted to know how it you know what I mean because I honestly I've I've read a bunch of Stephen King novels I I was more interested in watching the movie and and knowing what the source material was than actually reading it Um, Chris have you same here yeah I have not I have not read it either Um, but
3: uh, came to the movie first definitely loved it I'm interested in reading it especially this year given the Quarantine-esque nature of um the, the story.
1: Why would you do that to yourself? I literally am, I don't understand why you guys are like adding on to this. Like I cannot wait to just go watch like the sound of music to cleanse my palate because I need the hills to be alive. I need <laughs> them to just be roaming and open and free.
4: My hills are alive with the sound of
2: music.
1: <laughs> like The fact that you guys want to add on to that, that's cuckoo bananas to me, I'm sorry. Sorry to use such foul Mm. language. Yeah,
2: (laughs) we'll add it up. That
1: is cuckoo (laughs) bananas,
2: Yeah. (laughs) It is very strange that um, almost all of the film's iconic uh, plot devices or scenes, everything that you think of when you think of The Shining, even if you've barely seen it, are not in the novel. And you can imagine what that would be like to write a book, have it be moderately successful, one of the world's great directors wants to make a film about it, uh, adaptation of it, and then he makes up all this stuff, and everybody loves it. And for the next just decades, people reference that stuff with the name of the book that you wrote. Wouldn't that just be maddening?
4: I mean, I could definitely, yeah, I can empathize with that for sure. Hit the checks, probably helped. <laughs> alleviate some of the pain on that but uh but yes it would be maddening and it's one of those things though like i mean if it's going to be made into a movie and especially if it's a stanley kubrick movie like he he claims like ultimate ownership over everything within his realm like you said you know that's why he was so slow to put movies out and all this stuff he was deliberate and all that kind of so Mm -hmm. even if he's taking someone's novel he's gonna make it his and right. i think that's probably you know if if stephen king wanted a a film adaptation that was true to his book he shouldn't have got you know they shouldn't have gotten a director of that magnitude
2: <laughs> yeah right i can agree with that the, the that's a whole other podcast episode in itself the, the history of stephen king adaptations why is it so difficult to make a great adaptation And, you know, you look at the most some of the most successful adaptations of Kings to film are his non horror works like Stand By Me or Shawshank Redemption or something where it's like, why can't anybody get the horror right? I mean, I'm not saying that no one can get it right, but time after time after time, it's lacking or people are disappointed or he's disappointed.
1: Or they just change it because I will say The Mist is a really great film, but that ending is a little bit different than the ending of the novel, too. So it's like they're always trying to just tweak it just a little bit.
3: Chris, did you have something there? No, I didn't. I didn't have oh. much there. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I love I love Stephen King's work too. I I don't, I don't want to go too much down uh, a different direction. Right, it makes me think of like when I think of the best horror adaptations of Stephen King, like Christine comes to mind. As yeah. one that doesn't get talked about enough.
2: Christine's um, very underrated.
3: But you're right. It's interesting. The acclaimed ones don't tend to be the horror. That's that uh, seems like a funny paradox, given how great his horror is on paper.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it just came out within the last. It and it part two. They right. you know redid, but also weird, weird guy, weird stories. Let's just be. Well, honest. those those
2: also there. radically differed from the original book. Right. To to a, a degree that disappointed a lot of fans. Um, I didn't see them, but. Speaking of uh, horror films, horror films, um, how do you guys think this film builds a sense of the horrific or tension or dread without really relying on much gore at all, much many jump scares? Hayes, what do you got? (laughs) There's no monsters in this thing or anything, really.
4: No, man. But but we have some of the scariest sounds ever created by modern human people.
2: Let's talk about those sounds.
4: Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's like the use of sound in this movie seems like such a a Kubrick thing. You know what I mean? It's all about the like slow intentional build of tension over like, like we're not talking minutes. We're talking like tens of minutes. You know what I mean? That he'll like stretch and you're just like mm-hmm. the entire time, you know? And, and, and it's a picture of a beautiful mountain in Colorado. Yeah. Um, but but um, I think so it really starts with like his use of avant garde composers, because this is like the exact opposite. I think the last time I was on here, we were talking about Home Alone, right? Mm-hmm. And John Williams, right? Like it, the composer, he is like the polar opposite of like the musical direction that was used in this movie. It's very like sonorous and familiar to the ears, you know what I mean? And that kind of stuff. Um the average listener would probably argue that the music being used in this film is not music because it's like textural. You know what I mean? There are lots of like violin strings being like, like graded on with the bow. You know what I mean? Like over like really long periods of time. And the kind of difference that I'm talking about here is the difference between what we would call just like European influenced tonal harmony versus modern avant-garde techniques that in fact like utilize systems of tonal organization. So like pitches, you know what I mean? Um Krzysztof uh, Penderecki, the like one of the main composers who is featured in this film was a student of Anton Webern, Igor Stravinsky. Like if you're familiar with the Rite of Spring, which was known for its like extremely dissonant um kind of tonalities, uh, that's because they they were using these compositional techniques called like 12 tone composition, where um, they take every pitch that exists in the chromatic scale, like I'm going to bring my guitar out. You know what I mean? Like seriously, every pitch. Mm -hmm. Those are all the pitches that exist in music period. You know what I mean? And, And they repeat in octaves. So they would have a system where you take all those pitches and there's kind of like a, like a key, that tells you where to place them. And it sounds random to the human ear. If you're used to this tonal style of, of composition, you know what I mean? Like the, you know what I mean? Like this like tension release kind of thing, like tension and release in this, this style of music is created by like really high really release sounds. You know what I mean? They just like build over time. And it's like, to me that is what makes the horror of the shining it's not it's not the 300 gallons of blood coming out of the elevator doors or anything like that it's the music of these you know modern avant-garde composers gordon stainforth who is uh, the music editor for the film cuz like mm-hmm. nothing nothing was composed for this film per se it was like a uh, a compilation of modern avant-garde works you know so he was kind of like the almost like like uh, like a DJ would sample music. You know what I mean? He would take these huge chunks of avant garde music and sync some of the like really high points of tension or action with high points of tension and action in the movie. You know what I mean? Um, I think that was a, a lot of what I read said that like most of the 51 week like p- process of making this film, like a lot of that was he was like manipulating these very tiny details to sync the music correctly with the um the film which is crazy to me you know what i mean so if you think about that there's like a 10 minute build in these avant-garde compositions that leads up to a high point right of, of action he would was like very uh adamant about not editing the music or cutting any sections of it out so he would leave the whole piece which is why there's this huge 10 minutes long build into some scene sometime because he wanted to keep the music intact so
2: that's crazy yeah i mean today no one would do that you just cut it up and
4: of course two minutes is
2: fine you make a big explosion
4: sound and everyone's like oh you know and like it's, it's done um yeah but, like, if you think about the opening, really what I call the opening scene of this movie is 20 minutes long. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. w- the exposition of characters or whatever is 20 minutes long. And throughout that time, you're getting these uh, periods of, like, the, the, when when sound is happening in the background, when music is happening in the background, it's those low-synthesized, like, kind of dark pads with some, like, uh, percussion, like, really high-twinkly percussion crashes. They happen at interval and it, it just like reminds you of the tension, you know? So it, it's almost like there's this 10 minutes, 20 minutes long swell um that you don't realize it's pulling you in unless you're like looking for it, you know, but it, it, it creates a, an immense sense of dread. Um
2: Yeah. Especially those like when it builds this kind of like a symbol crash and it cuts to one of those really abrupt title screens. That's like Wednesday or whatever. Yes. Really, really. Horrifying for, uh, I don't know what reason. For it's no just, reason. It's just horrifying.
4: For no reason. <laughs> oh my and, God, Wednesday. Yeah, it, but, but it's scary. But it's it's like to me, it's the sense of foreboding because yeah. like they, it, let's be real. If you've watched the first twenty minutes of The Shining, which is low on action, right? Mm-hmm. If you've watched the first twenty minutes, you know exactly what's going to happen at the end of the movie because there's the hotel manager explaining like oh there was this guy who like murdered his entire family and then you know what i mean there are all these they they clearly present you with these elements that's like it, it's almost like what they call like target fixation where you can see something bad in the distance but by looking at it you're actually like going towards it <laughs> you know what i right. mean so they present you with these elements and you're like oh no we're headed toward that but there's nothing you can do you know yeah it's, it, it's this like sense of confinement i think that like virginia was talking about early on you know And the music helps pack you into that box because you're in these tight frames. They're in this isolated place. And then to hear something that reminds you of like, uh, you know how when like, if you notice a clock ticking for too long, it just drives you absolutely crazy. It's like that sense, you know? Um, I I love this movie for that reason.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he definitely sets up um, right from the beginning, the first shot, this sense of like just, glacial dread and you don't even know why um it's beautiful but, like
4: mountain scenes right like you're just like going through Colorado like oh this is amazing
2: <laughs> but at the same time I feel like um, re-watching I I didn't remember how frightening that felt and I think it's the speed of the camera movement it's the height of the camera movement on the one hand I'm forced to feel complicit in the horror because it's like I'm following these people's car. Whether I want to or not, I'm like the, the ghost following these people. I'm forced to be in that position. And on the other hand, just visually, I'm so high up, like it looks like I'm gonna fall any second. And it really, when you watch it on a big screen, like that is amazing camera work. I think that's the first thing where it's just like, you're not in control here, we are controlling you, you're being propelled along uh, and you know, you're in danger um it's
1: such an interesting um everything you said Hayes I was just like the whole time I was like so I love listening <laughs> to you talk about music because every time I feel like I learned so much I just recently saw Land by um Chloe Zhao and they have a lot of those wider following shots as well because obviously lives in her van and stuff but just the tonal shift of it being more of kind of that light strumming music that you were, you know, doing, it was like, you, you feel complicit in this woman's freedom, in her Mm -hmm. liberation and not her confinement. So it's so interesting that I didn't even think about it until you said it, but that like tension and release that you hear is so it was like so tonally necessary because it sets you up right away to be like we're gonna go on a journey and there might be some ups and downs but at the end of the day this character is like liberated yeah there's, yeah. there's, there's a there's an openness to it and that I, I like didn't even put it together I just watched Land earlier this week but I like didn't even put it together until you said that because there were very similar
5: of course. Not as high
1: up, but similar like of these like following shots that, you know, these are the establishing shots that we could know for someone to be on a journey. It was so different, but also for all the parents out there. Um, Igor Stravinsky is featured in Fantasia. Yes. That's how I knew that name because I watch that all the time. Because of my kid.
4: <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's amazing. I should have uh, said that. I think that's probably most people's only exposure to Igor Stravinsky's music. Listen, my,
1: my kid, not even 18 months, he's a fan. That's all yeah. I'm saying. You know, <laughs> Me loves and Igor, it. Igor, we're tight. He he actually does his little composing hands because it goes like this because he <laughs> yeah. watches the guy and it's all in silhouette. So truly, nice. he's like for real, like a fan now. And I was like, why do I know that name? Oh, right. I think that was like the dinosaurs one or, not, you know, <laughs> one of the sequences is just, and it is, it holds a lot of that tension, but yeah. yeah. I,
4: didn't,
1: I didn't even think about that, like release until you mentioned that.
4: Yeah. it's And it's fun to see how composers, because you're talking about two different treatments with the same kinds of scene shots, right? You know, it, it's weird. We're at a point in history where tension and release with sound it was it used to be expressed only in the John Williams kind of way, what I was talking about. You know what I mean? But we're finally getting to the point where like these early twentieth century composer's music, like film has caught up with where they were back mm. in the day or whatever. Yeah. in terms of how um, it, it, trying to experiment with how to make tension and release. You can do it with like um what do I want to say, just purely volume on a single pitch. Or, you know what I mean? Just these weird kind of conceptions of music. Um, but Kubrick is, like I said, this is total Kubrick. Because 2001 Space Odyssey, it messes with sound in the exact same way. Like, you feel this Im- immense sense of loneliness and dread the entire time,
1: right? Well, and we did The Witch Not too long ago, too. And you were on that episode, too. And you were talking about that same kind of stuff where it was, you know, adding to that confinement feeling of like, okay, the woods are kind of outlining everybody, the music is going to kind of, and you, you walked us through all those really cool European instruments and stuff, too. Why is it always Europeans? They would be, be making it real tense.
4: Yeah, that is kind of true. Americans definitely love the tonal kind of music, you know. We're, we're all well, we
2: that. want a good resolve. We want to go. Okay, the chord needs to resolve. Yeah, Europeans just go. It's Not going to resolve, man.
4: Yeah, we've f- they figured it out. Hundreds There's no of years illusions ago, here, yeah. right? <laughs> They're just it's like never going to a... resolve.
1: Literally, I'm comparing like the yeah. with just like a bow oh, <laughs>
4: yeah, <forever."
1: laughs> Europeans are like, sorry, guys, you're in it now. <laughs>
4: yeah, uh, stupid Americans. <laughs> um, I
2: also re watching this, I felt like the whole I, I noticed for the first time the whole opening from Nicholson going in to get the job interview all the way up until basically everyone leaves the hotel and we start the film with just them there. There's no cuts, it's all just dissolves. It's these very slow dissolves. And a dissolve makes you feel like you don't know how much time has passed. It disorients your sense of like, it's just disorienting in general because you go like, okay, so where am I exactly? And he spends like 20 minutes doing that to you. of Just like, something is not right here. Like, this is not how these scenes are supposed to go. And I mean, obviously he, he does a masterful job throughout the film of making you feel like something is not right. This information shouldn't be shown to me in this way. I swear that that thing in the background moved. I don't think that thing was there before, which really just feeds into all the conspiracies and, and all the mysteries of this film. But you know like i'd said before he he set out purposefully to make the scariest film of all time and i think he knew how to do that was subliminally and to tell not necessarily your eyes but your mind that like something is off did you guys have the same experience in the beginning of the film
4: i definitely feel the same way about that um upon my second watching or not second watching i've seen the movie a million times but my most recent watching of the film You know, there's that line where he says, what was it? It's like, I feel like I, uh, like as as soon as I walked through the door, I felt like I knew this place.
1: I tell you when we first came up here, I thought it was kind of (laughs) scary.
0: I fell in love with it right away. When I came up here for my interview, it was as though I'd been here before. I mean, We all have moments of deja vu, but this was ridiculous. It was almost as though I knew what was going to be around every
5: corner.
4: And like, I knew what was around every corner, you know what I mean? And it's almost like, like if you're looking at those dissolves, like you're talking about it. I wonder if that's like the feeling that he was feeling in the midst of that. Like, like, this is deja way, vu. Yeah. Like this isn't yeah. the way everything is supposed to be. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. But that, that was just my kind of initial thought in thinking about the the kind of weird because it is dreamy. Right. Mm-hmm. In, in some kind of way that it's presented.
2: For sure. Yeah. There's uh there's a lot of information that you can read about um, Kubrick micromanaging the sets and the props and the items in the frame to to just subtly move them, which Like I was saying, you don't notice like to the point where you could notate it, but your brain knows better and your brain sees that and it goes, something is off. Get out of here. Reality is not progressing as it should be, which, again, extremely Lynchian. And I I haven't talked about the Lynch stuff yet.
4: Do it. David Lynch and I have the same birthday, so we got to Oh,
2: nice. (laughs) Uh, No, I just want to talk real briefly because um, having not seen this in a long time and being much uh, more familiar with Lynch stuff, uh, I really didn't understand the Lynch connection. I was watching this and I was like, this is the most Lynchian non-Lynch movie I've ever seen. Well, the story is that, I mean, it's simple. David Lynch was a huge fan of Kubrick his whole life. and. Uh, At the time that this movie was made, he actually screened this for the cast and crew and anybody he could. Uh, Kubrick claimed that Eraserhead was his favorite film. Eraserhead comes out in 77, and he loved it. And the story eventually got to Lynch years later, and he was just, like, overjoyed that his hero loved his absolutely bonkers weird movie. Stanley Kubrick is one of my all-time favorite
0: filmmakers, and he did me a great honor early in my career that really encouraged me. I was working on The Elephant Man and was at Lee International Studios in England, standing in a hallway. One of the producers of The Elephant Man, Jonathan Sanger, brought over some guys who were working with George Lucas and said, they've got a story for you. And I said, okay. They said, yesterday, David, we were out at Elstree Studios and we met Kubrick. And as we were talking to him, he said to us, how would you fellas like to come up to my house tonight and see my favorite film? They said that would be fantastic. They went
2: up and Stanley Kubrick showed them Eraserhead. So right then I could have passed away peaceful and happy. And When you start to think about Lynch films and their unreality, their awkwardness, their random bouts of chaos and violence, their undercurrent of dread it's like Kubrick and Lynch had this dialogue going throughout their entire careers. And that's why, I mean, watching this now too, um, the feeling that like evil could infect a place or could be part of a place that could get into you. If you step into it, I just, I don't, I don't think there's, yeah, I don't think there's twin peaks without the shining, which is crazy to consider.
4: Yeah. That I I can see that now. I'll I'll bite on that one, Caleb. I'll bite sure. on that one.
2: <laughs> bite it. I'd never made that connection for some reason. I did not know that it was a specifically like, uh, you know, Kubrick saying that and and Lynch being such a fan. But
4: it makes sense that they would. It makes so have, much sense. Have had like a mutual influence because you're totally right. The way that they manipulate visual and auditory elements to to elicit such a sense of dread and awkward i love how you said awkwardness because yeah. one, of the, one of the things that i notice about like the first uh, we keep going back to that first 20 minute sequence of the shining where he's kind of like you know he's being interviewed he's talking with the people on the grounds like the hotel general manager that conversation is one of the most unsettling ones that i've ever witnessed on film there's just something like like really forced and lynchy and about, mm-hmm. it. you know what I mean? Like, like it almost makes you want to read behind what the guy is saying, even though he's pretty straightforward with all the stuff he's, you know, he talks about the murder and all these things, mm-hmm. but it, it's that same kind of like almost like dream sequence style conversation that David. Yeah. Right. Had. You
2: have a dream and in your dream, people don't talk the way that they do, but it made yeah. sense in the dream. But then remembering later, you're like, well, that,
4: that's not how that goes. That was effed up.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's just like this weird stiltedness that that makes you feel like you don't have like solid footing.
4: Yeah, it's almost like the the Lynch uh, conversations where they're doing the dialogue backwards, but it sounds correct. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? It's like those kind of things.
2: Absolutely. (laughs)
1: I think we've all at some point in our lives, like walked into like a small town grocery store and been like, mm, I can buy eggs somewhere else. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, don't, I don't need any of that. I don't want to invite any spirits. I'm not trying to disrupt anything. And it's not like I'm going around, you know, smudging places to try to get spirits away. But what I'm saying is like, there's too much of like real life that creeps in and then the no rules just means anything could happen at any time and all of a sudden your dad's running around chasing you with an axe and I am not here for it I don't I don't want it can I have a vampire with extra long fingernails please because I can run away from that I can have garlic I can get some holy water I can circle of salt myself from a demon do you know what I mean there are rules that you adhere to for supernatural frights and so this thing where like really the scariest thing is your mind, no thank you. I don't want that.
4: Sounds like you have some inner work to do, Virginia. Listen,
1: this is for me, this is for my therapist. They'll talk about it, I don't, well, I just, I, there's something about it where I just, it's not my favorite, you know? we're,
2: we're, we're talking about the fundamentals of what people get out of horror, yeah. which for you upends you in a way that is is not helpful. And for someone like me, it it feels like it prepares me for when bad things happen in real life. For
1: when you say the hotel gets snowed in and then yes. your partner tries to axe you through the door, that's a preparation I don't need in my life. Do you know everybody what I mean? else I'm is freaking for? out, oh, but ghost. I'm
2: like, I've seen this movie. I, I can do this. <laughs> it's a survival thing. No, thank you. So, Chris, you know anything about, <laughs> you know anything about
3: Uh I know it involves keeping. A camera steady <laughs> wonderful
4: that was so usually so the go
3: for for those who don't know dang it <laughs> you Might like, even I'm have, so a so fancy
1: glad have you here for these technical bits <laughs> yeah
3: no i just
2: it's okay i just wondered Can't
4: i thought I got that, that
2: uh i thought that that sarah would would bring the city cam knowledge um Does anybody else, uh, before I go on my little thing?
1: Well, yeah. So um, a Steadicam is a harness that you wear on your chest that Mm -hmm. um, has an extendable arm that typically bends on um, uh, a few different um, kind of uh, pivot points. So basically, uh, a person wears it and it differs a lot from handheld, but still gives you a freedom of motion. So where something like Blair Witch Project is extremely and almost exclusively handheld. Um, you see a lot of steady Steadicam uh, stuff in, you know, running scenes where particularly they want to be close up and maybe the use of a dolly track would be uh, too far away. Even with um, a lens that could get you closer up, you want to be closer into the action. And I really liked the comment that um, Lachelle uh has left on Facebook saying that the first use of Steadicam was in How Ashby's Bound for Glory. Um, Thank you for that tip. Um, But yeah, so basically Steadicam gives you that closeness and that intimacy that handheld would give without a lot of that um, kind of shakiness and chaos, visually, that happens to kind of just naturally come with handheld because if you're obviously a running body the camera is going to pick up every movement of that run. A Steadicam allows you to um, kind of smooth that out in a way while still maintaining a lot of that intimacy. And fun fact, a lot of Steadicam operators are shockingly men, but it is now becoming a thing in a department where a lot more women um, Steadicam operators are kind of uh, getting a lot more work in larger budget films, which is really cool. and they use them a lot in uh, scenes where they want to create a spooky intimacy. But also, it's not always just for horror, either. It's for kind of anything that you would want. Oh, yeah. I to mean, it's... something else.
3: Anything to move the camera along with the characters or whatever's happening.
5: Yeah.
1: Right.
3: Keep I it mean, smooth. it splits the difference
2: between a dolly shot and a handheld,
0: mm-hmm. which,
2: you know, there's, there's issues with each one. But um, so this fellow, Garrett Brown, invented the Steadicam. Yeah, good, good catch on the uh, first film to utilize it, which was 1976, so just a couple of years before they started filming The Shining.
5: I've been a fan of Stanley Kubrick since I began thinking about movies. Kubrick got to see the demo we made for the study cam, which was 30 Impossible Shots. I liked handheld. I did not like the way it looked then or now. And so what I needed was a way to disconnect the camera from the person. The great thing about that invention is you can shoot something that anybody in the business will know is impossible. It went quote viral in 35 millimeter. Copies of it went around the world and was seen by, you know, everybody that was anybody in the business. Kubrick saw the reel and sent a telex that gave me chills to read. And the telex said should revolutionize the way films are shot. You can count on me as a customer. very Kubrickian sentence that followed said, oh, by the way, if you're interested in protecting it, there are 14 frames of film that show a shadow of it on the ground with something slowly rotating, but my lips are sealed, he said. Of course, we darted into the screening room, and by God, he was right. We had to cut those frames out of the demo. And then enigmatically at the end, he said, is there a minimum height at which it could be used? That led to us inventing something called low mode, and he immediately decided to use it on the film he was prepping, hence the question, what's the minimum height? Because he was about to shoot Danny Lloyd and The Shining.
2: The Shining was only the fourth feature film to utilize the cam. so we're so used to it now. And by the way, if anybody's struggling to grasp what we're actually talking about, these are the shots um, following Danny as he big wheels around the hotel. These are the shots following uh, Danny and Jack as Jack is stalking him through the maze at the end. Um, there's multiple uses in this film, but um, some other famous uses from the period are the famous Rocky stairs sequence was uh, Garrett Brown operating his steady cam. Return of the Jedi, the speeder bike chase is Garrett Brown shooting his steady cam one frame a second walking through the Redwood Forest, um, which I love. That's insane. For a lot of the shots in this, he was sitting in a wheelchair with that apparatus in front of him. Um, I'm and
1: assuming that was for the- The, um,
2: the big, interiors. The big wheel
1: interior. Because yeah. that yeah. felt very much like a dolly in terms of smoothness and also how fast he was going. Because I don't think you could really, per- I mean, maybe somebody could run that fast, but those harnesses are fairly heavy.
2: Right. Yeah, and this really was born out of how much he hated poorly shot handheld uh, sequences. And that's not really how the human eye sees things. You think about if you go out for a run, you're bouncing all around, but you don't see what, (laughs) you know, somebody with a camcorder would be seeing. Your eyes naturally sort of stabilize as you're doing that. And just the genius involved in him figuring out a way to do that. And it's just it's just uh, I would have loved to be in audiences in the late 70s and early 80s, seeing shots like that for the first time. There's no way for us in the modern age to really experience that anew, but it just must have been as amazing to see as some of the innovations from you know, the early 20th century or something.
1: Well, Kubrick too, he being as like kind of auteurish as he was and how he really um, wanted things to look a certain way for um, Barry Lyndon, he actually created a lighting system that was completely unique to that film. It hadn't been used before where mm-hmm. everything was like lit by natural candlelight. So they had to kind of alter and get lenses and cameras that could pick up the detail of the scenes. Um with using minimal light so like he has a a kind of pattern of of especially for the time period using emerging technology to kind of really get the feel and the tone visually that he was he was going for which again it's so commonplace to us now but to think about it you know 40 plus years ago that is is kind of insane you know 40, 50 yeah. years ago. that's pretty
2: insane. Well, and that speaks to his film obsession and just his his desire to make great works no matter what. He looked at everything that was available and he looked at everything that was emerging and he just said, you know, how can I do this new thing? How can I be involved in whatever's out there at whatever cost? And fortunately, in the late 70s, he was in the position where he could afford to do that um, and afford to have creative control over that, so... Do you guys have any specific production design stuff that you want to mention that you really think uh, you like the look of or you liked the the feeling of at all?
1: Just this dress that I wore today. Nice. Yeah, yep. that was it. That's my main production design contribution.
2: I had said before we got on that that looks like carpet that was in like room 236 or 238. It's not the 237 carpet, but it's like the next <laughs> room over. Speaking of carpet, you know, that famous carpet, right, that we're kind of looking at right now. I read an article in the magazine Film and Furniture, because of course, where they were trying to trace um, where the carpet design actually came from. And interestingly, the Kubrick archives um, had a hard time with it. So this magazine kind of made it their mission to find out. Um, And a reader of the magazine sent in a picture from their parents' house in Germany where one of the rooms was carpeted in this actual carpet. So this is a this was not created for the film.
1: Europeans again.
2: Europeans, yeah. Uh, so the designer was a very famous uh, designer, especially active in the 60s, named David Hicks. And this design is called Hicks Hexagon. And I'm assuming that Kubrick chose it for how well it works with his sort of one-point perspective and symmetrical framing. You know, everything goes into that one, you know, Danny's, head in that shot it all perfectly lines up with that and the symmetry of of the sides there but i also just wanted to bring up that hicks hexagon and the hexagon style i mean it has the word hex in it um it also has six sides and danny has a sixth sense that's my first little dip into weird stuff i don't know if you guys want to get into more of that or not conspiracy
4: corner it's, it's lurking we're lurking around <laughs> conspiracy <laughs> corner i have a yeah. feeling <laughs>
2: And it's only a three-hour lecture, so don't worry. I
1: just I feel like it does where... need a theme. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, Hayes, just strum one one string and hold it. Hayes, like perform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Create. Ooh, conspiracy corner.
1: Well, that
0: was
4: so good.
2: That was great. <laughs> Actually, though, before we get into that, we have to talk about the. Is there a more beautifully are there two more beautifully stylized bathrooms in the history of film? The green bathroom and the red bathroom. Are you kidding me with these? Do you guys know bathrooms that look like these? Look at that. It's worth looking up the the real-life places that these locations were inspired by. Obviously, the exterior is a real place, although it doesn't include like the hedge maze or anything like that. Those were all invented for the film. But the Owani Hotel in Yosemite that Kubrick stayed at while he was conceptualizing the film has the same exact elevators, uh, the same light fixtures. The lobby is so similar. I was really stunned to see some pictures of that place where as a former photographer, he must've stayed there and just shot every inch of the place and just said, recreate this because we have to say in case anyone's not aware, I was not aware all of these interiors are constructed sets in Elstree Studios in England, which blew me away. The fact that these interiors are not real spaces, that they built them for this film.
4: You just blew my mind, buddy. I didn't know that. Yeah.
2: They feel so lived in and so, so real. And I I just think it's one of the masterpieces of construction in a film like this.
3: What an amazing eye he has. That's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like a, a collector who is just finding all of these weird spaces of the world and recreating them for the films that he makes to, yeah,
1: psych- well. to psychologically torture us. Great. Right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Just to see something like that and go, you know what I could see happening there. I could see about 6,000 gallons of blood shooting outside of that elevator,
1: which I do have to say, thank you to Mr. Kubrick for giving myself and every person that's ever been the greatest gift of all time, because if I've ever needed to send something to someone to just let them know what's happening, I have it there. So, you know, that's probably my favorite contribution of Stanley Kubrick to modern popular culture is specifically that elevator gif. So, right. Yeah. And I make that face a lot of times when I send it too. it's crazy.
2: The illustration here is that these two things are being juxtaposed together. And knowing that he added those floor, markers on top of the doors. Obviously, those are Danny's eyes. Obviously, the screaming mouth is the elevator. Um, And there are many other instances throughout the film of matching faces with things coming out of the mouth, which is a larger theme that, again, I'm not even sure we're going to hit, but it's interesting to see. And the next time you rewatch, I think you'll see a lot more of that.
3: I wonder if there's something in his uh, study of subliminal messaging and imaging that ties into the kind of image matching of those two put together the way they talk about was the mad max fury road where they said they filmed the action sequences where everything was kind of aligned in the center of the frame to help just draw you in a little bit more with very similar Mm -hmm. framing as as different as those action sequences felt from shot to shot
2: Okay, let's hit Conspiracy Corner real quick. Um, I should say right up front, you're probably aware of a few of the conspiracies, even if you are not super familiar with the film. Um, and most of them are covered uh, in various degrees of success in the documentary Room 237 um, that came out a few years ago. And it was definitely a lot of my source material for this, although the documentary is a little bit rambling at times, I find. Um, some of the interview subjects seem to be a little bit more uh, with it than others. and But then again, I think that the filmmaker means to do that, to just sort of present this stuff and not say, you know, one way or another, this is true, this is not true. I mean, first of all, why are there so many conspiracies and mysteries that surround this film, but also Kubrick's whole filmmaking career? Why is this guy so synonymous with... You know, faking the moon landing or, uh, you know, hidden messages or secrets or people being driven mad by overanalyzing his stuff.
1: I mean, I think he's one of those directors that when you reach an auteur status, which I think obviously he he did pretty early on and you have such a clear voice and tone and vision, I think it's really easy to kind of put that on someone who does work that is a bit unsettling right and it is a bit off Mm -hmm. off kilter and, and I mean it obviously became mainstream but if we're comparing it to other mainstream American cinema at the time it was very different tonally so I can see where stuff like that would be really easy to kind of want to parse and kind of figure out, because there are so many layers, there are so many times where, like you said, at the beginning, you know, there's like a, a prop moved just a little bit, so that your brain registers it, even if you don't consciously register it. So mm. I think that that's a really easy in, um, you know, for people to be like, well, there's got to be more, you know, there's got to be more to that. And also, we all know the moon landing was like fake so it's like no i'm just kidding sorry (laughs) um
2: how could there even be a moon if the earth is flat
1: i don't even understand like mars rover try again um but i think that i feel like that's a really easy in right and from everything that i could see too like he didn't necessarily discourage that kind of mythologizing of himself and his work right like there is very much a mythology around him. And so I think with with artists like that, I think that's a really easy in to kind of be like, well, he probably has 70 layers of this underneath and I got to, you know, I got to get them all.
2: Well, he didn't like um, things that were spelled out. He liked when things were enigmatic and he liked a mystery. He liked art that that lived and breathed and changed with you and that you could see several times and get something out of it every time. A lot like David Lynch, where these guys are, they, they want to create something that's not one static experience that never changes. When you watch this thing and you see Danny on the carpet and uh, in one shot, he's in one place and then the next shot, he's in another place. You just feel like, well, why did that happen? And then you think, well, maybe I don't need to know the answer. Maybe it's just making me feel a certain way. You know, maybe it's not really as intellectual as as, it's, as you'd think it is. Maybe it's just meant to be a really scary horror film that unsettles you. Um, I mean, The Conspiracy Stuff is, is its own podcast, honestly. I mean, the, the, big, the biggest thing is that uh, Kubrick was hired by NASA to fake the moon landing, evidenced by a lot of numerology, a lot of 11s throughout the film, Um, the 237 room it's not only allegedly 237,000 miles from the earth to the moon um danny's got the sweater obviously there's a tapestry in the lobby that looks like rockets there's tang in the kitchen i i could honestly go on and on but that's like the first level
1: i mean this all tracks for me so it's like you're basically just convincing (laughs) me and i'm sure the audience that like moon landing was fake so like I, I'm
2: convinced as you know. In, incorrect. The number one reason that Kubrick did not fake the moon landing, and this is officially on record, the timeline doesn't match up. The Soviets gave us the, the push to get into space in the late 50s. If their deadline, if NASA's deadline was to be on the moon in 1969, there is no way that Kubrick could have worked within that time frame and delivered a product on time and on budget for them And uh, it also, it wouldn't, the moon footage wouldn't look like rubbish. It'd be beautiful. It it would look like this film.
1: Or he made that astronaut do so many takes of that line (laughs) that that is what we got, you know? He was just tired and broken down and that's what we were left with. You know, we don't really know.
3: Correct. It would have a better soundtrack, I feel like. Oh yeah, amazing. If he had done it. The other
2: theories have a lot to do with um, that the film is about the genocide of Native Americans and um, American expansion. There's another one that it's the whole film is a Holocaust allegory. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of little weird bits that you can add to that. But I think that ultimately what those break down is that this film is about the cycles of forgetting or denying past horrors so that they can perpetuate. I think that what we're dealing with with Jack as a father and as a person is someone who uh, was abused and is unable to break that cycle. And in a larger sense, what we do as a society, what people do, uh, what nations do, um, you know, whether you're talking about Native Americans or the Holocaust or any other kind of genocide. like I was really stunned when I heard somebody talk about the elevator and the blood. It's like the blood of the people that this elevator was built on, again, Native American burial ground, uh, is blasting through those doors in a way that, like, the doors don't even need to open. The blood will get through, and it's like this generational pain reasserts itself, and in this one place that's so charged with evil from, uh, you know, these past traumas. And um, I think that there's a lot of the conspiracies that work in that that frame it's all dealing with the same stuff that's what i think kubrick saw in it that king didn't necessarily see in it or he saw as localized to more of his dealing with addiction and alcoholism and his issues with being a father and being a, a husband and being a an artist that's about as quickly as i can go through my f- five pages of
4: <laughs> conspiracy stuff i i mean i'm on board yeah you'd <laughs> yeah. bite it i bite it I bite it. (laughs) That's my new favorite phrase. Yeah. Thanks for that. I'm on the hook. (laughs) Does
2: anybody want to recommend anything that this movie uh, inspired them toward or reminded them of, or if you like the shining, what's next?
1: There is a a television series um, called room one Oh four. It was created by Mark Duplass that um, Mm -hmm. was on HBO probably now lives on HBO max if I had to gain, take a guess. Um, But it is an anthology series that is um, based in a hotel in room 104 and kind of everything that happens in every episode is, is it supernatural? Is it psychological? Basically people are just not having a great time depending on the episode, but I really like um, conceptually the show. Um, Uh, Mark Duplass obviously is famous for sort of popularizing mumblecore as a genre, um, if you've ever seen Puffy Couch, Um, but he's also uh, done stuff much later um, that did kind of have bigger budget, you know, like there's like a a fluctuating, but um, a fluctuation rather, but with this particular series, he, the whole point was that he wanted to write things that were contained to one location so that the budget could be smaller uh, it could become a more sustainable series. And it also allowed him to actually tap new directing talent. So he didn't really direct, I, I think maybe a handful of episodes, but he didn't really direct anything. It was, it was, it became a vehicle to kind of tap new directing talent. And so if you haven't seen any of those episodes, I really recommend it because, because uh, thematically tonally, obviously each episode is different as it's an anthology series, but if you like, you know, spook that is contained to a room. I really, I liked that. Um, and also, well, sorry, I'm seeing the comments on this on the side. Lachelle asked, what did anybody think of the recent sequel? Has anybody seen that? I did not, but I do love Ewan McGregor, right? Do yeah, you like I
2: mean, that? sure, Ewan McGregor, but I don't think I can bring myself to uh, see it based on what I've heard. Not that I've heard that it's horrible, I think specific, like this is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining that we're talking about, and that's what I've been watching. And if I was watching Dr. Sleep, the sequel, it'd be Stephen King's Dr. Sleep. So I feel like I might watch it after I reread the original book, maybe as a sequel to that. But it feels like it's so different from this film, and it's so, even though it pays uh, homage to so many things in this movie, I know. I just sort of like don't need any more. Like I'm just like done.
1: Lachelle, what did you think of it? You leave <laughs> yeah. us all us in the comments. What are your thoughts of it?
2: Yeah, because I've heard good and bad. I'm not saying you know it's all bad or anything, but Chris Hayes, what about you guys? You have any uh, further recommendations or Kubrick recommendations or winter stuff?
4: I, I honestly, I so I I'm a I'm bad. I hadn't seen. <laughs> 2001 space odyssey until i we were literally in an airbnb our first trip up here when we were moving to grand rapids and i was having a discussion with my wife she was talking about stanley kubrick and i was like yeah never seen 2001 and she was like Hmm. what so if you're out there and because it's referenced in everything, right? It's 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 like The Shining, like you were talking about. You know right. what I mean? There are all these cultural references, but we've never actually seen it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think if I could recommend anything, definitely for the, the people like me who are living under a rock, go see 2001 Space Odyssey. And also um, the composer that I was talking about, uh, Krzysztof uh, Penderecki, look up some of his works. There's a really famous one called Threnody to the Victims of Hiroshima. I would suggest listening to that one. Um, It evokes a lot of the same feelings that you feel in this. And it's kind of like a landmark work in the, the style that kind of is used in this film. Um, And that work, we, we didn't even get into this. There are all sorts of Lynch connections through Penderecki Mm -hmm. too, because Lynch uses his works and his movies. Uh, Threnody was actually featured in the reboot of Twin Peaks. Uh, So like, there are all these crazy kind of connections that we can talk about there, but definitely go listen to some, uh, Krzysztof, uh, Penderecki, great composer.
2: I think that piece of music listening to it again for this, I think it's the saddest, scariest piece of music ever composed.
4: Yeah. Like, it, it's, uh,
2: it's so horrific, but It is the way that it's used in the twin peaks revival too, uh, Lynch is making a point. If you guys are familiar with what I'm saying, or if you eventually see it, He uses the piece of music at a very key moment in the series where he's illustrating, I think the point where human beings turn a corner, where we we reach a a point where we will never be able to come back from.
4: Yeah, it kind of sits in line with the original intention of the work, I think. Right.
3: Chris, what do you got? One that comes to my mind after talking about The Shining is a documentary, if that's fair to pick a documentary, but uh, Film Worker. Mm-hmm. It's a documentary about Leon Vitali, who worked as Stanley Kubrick's assistant for about, well, it was most of the second half of Kubrick's directing career. And uh, he has an interesting story. Leon was actually an actor, who was in the film Barry Lyndon, he had a role and uh, was just enamored with Kubrick and how he worked. And the story is that he approached Kubrick and said, hey, if you're working on anything, I'd love to just give you a hand. And uh, even as like a PA or something, just to kind of learn from Kubrick and the way that he worked. And he ended up becoming his, uh, his assistant. Uh, his personal assistant on all of those projects on the shining specifically. He, uh, one of his major contributions was, uh, helping cast Danny, the actor who played Danny, and also basically being the director for Danny, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. Um, and, uh, as well as uh, a director for, uh, significant chunks of uh, full metal jacket, he had a very interesting impact on a lot of Kubrick's work. Um, over the course of his career. And it's also an interesting look into Kubrick's own quirks and creative process and, and how he did what he did, um, from an interesting angle. So it's called film worker. I would, I would recommend that one.
2: Yeah, that's a great documentary. And if anybody uh, wants to get deep into conspiracy stuff, um, you know, there's a million YouTube videos for the, for these kinds of things, but I would specifically recommend, uh, Rob Ager, Ager um, and his channel, Collative Learning. Uh, that's where I found that really the most insightful and the best presented arguments for a lot of these uh, mysteries surrounding the film. Um, which is weird to be recommending a YouTube channel, but really he puts it together so well. So,
3: there's a recommendation for you, Caleb, specifically from the comments. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, from Michelle. She she responded to our question earlier about what did you think of Dr. Sleep? Mm -hmm. And she said, I expected it to be bad, but I actually really enjoyed it. It's a very different tone, but of course it is. I'd say once the glow of recently watching The Shining is over, give it a go.
2: Cool, yeah, all right. Well, never say never, (laughs) except for the fact that we're running up against our deadline here. So we do have to say goodbye, even though after an hour and 45 minutes, I've gone through, I've got at least 42 other uh (laughs) <laughs> points to make, oh, we're gonna have to do a part two yeah <laughs> i am too let's talk about what we're doing next month for a combo episode of screen club and cinema lab
1: Virginia, what's it all about? Yeah, I'm excited. Guys, it's Fargo and Fargo. For everybody that's listening, you cannot see this still. But basically, we are going to do a combined event on March 25th at 6 p.m. We're combining Screen Club, which is our series that dissects uh, television, and Cinema Lab, which is our series that you're currently watching that dissects the motion pictures. And basically, we're going to look at the first season of Fargo and the feature film, Fargo. Um, So come... You know, as prepared as you can, if you've seen one, if you've seen the other. um, come and have a chat with us. We, uh, as always, really like to do these as a book club style event. So, as you can see, we've been interacting with everybody that's watching. Um, and commenting with us. So we love to have conversations um, with, with you guys. So come and join us on March 25th. As always, this is brought to you by Wealthy Theater, Grand Rapids Community Media Center. If you want to support independent programming like this, um, you can visit wealthytheater.org donate. You can visit grcmc.org slash donate. Um, We are doing this on behalf of a nonprofit organization that has um, many arms in the community of Grand Rapids. But as we learned uh, last week with our wonderful Mystery Science Theater 3000 guests, um, you know, public access, cable access really community-based programming, even if it starts small or feels like it has a small reach, especially now with the internet, um, really has a global reach. And so you can always go to grcmc.org, wealthytheater.org, grtv.org, wyce.org. Did I hit everybody? I think I did. (laughs) Um, And you can listen to radio. You can watch TV. You can um, really support the arts that are continuously um, giving back to the community Of Grand Rapids and the larger art-loving community of the world. Um, And it's been a hard year. It's been a weird 2021 so far. You know, we talked a lot about feeling confined and being confined, but really, I think this series, connecting with the audience, getting to watch it grow every month, you know, it's been a real pleasure and a a joy for me to be a part of it. Um, And I just, you know, thank you to the audience that keeps kind of Tuning into us every month because I know we can't be together in person, but this connection um, has been really fulfilling and enriching for me. And I think that that's why we all continue to to show up and put on this programming because we want to, um, you know, expand media literacy, expand the way that we all talk and think about art in all of its different mediums. So if you like this, please. Donate if you can, and just um, a share, a like, a follow. All of those things are great. If you don't have any actual cash, you can give us a bit of your social currency. Fellas, any parting words before we we say goodbye to the the wonderful folks that joined us at the Overlook Hotel?
4: It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Namaste.
2: Yeah, thanks, everybody, for tuning in and the comments. And uh, I'd, I'd volunteer to be stuck in a hotel with you all winter, any day.
1: I will not go that far, but I do appreciate everybody. And this was super fun. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night.
2: Thanks. Good night, y'all.